bow your heads with me as we go to our God in prayer. Almighty God, we come to you today as those who are forgiven in Christ. Not because we're clean on our own, but because Christ has made us clean. And so we are happy to run to you and bring our needs to you now. Father, we thank you for your care for our brother Julian again this week through his surgery. Father, we pray that you would restore his body and strengthen him. Father, we're burdened this week primarily for the people that you've put among us. Give us eyes to see and care for those in this church body, we pray. Father, as we see this perverted authority in Scripture today, we pray that our church would be free of such perversion. Father, we pray for husbands in our church to love their wives. Father, we pray that the men of First Boynton would be typified by gentleness and self-sacrifice, that we would live with our wives in an understanding way. Father, many are husbands and fathers in this room. We pray that you would help us to lead our homes well. Men like Darren and Dick, Clayton and Craig, Kurt, Arius, Kevin, others. Lord, be with us. Guide us, we pray. Father, we pray also for parents fathers and mothers in our church. Help our parents to lead our children with patience and love that shows our children the unending love of Christ. May we show our children that what you command is not burdensome. Father, none of us have done this well, but we pray that you would help us we pray that you would encourage the, the parents that are here that desire to live out of this grace. Father, help our parents in our church to lead their families well. For Matt and Givet and Chris and Jennifer and Kevin and Jenny, Jamie and myself, Keith and Kimmy, Tony, Mandy, Stephen and Janissa, Lord, Use us, all of us in this room who have roles of authority. Use us to demonstrate your unending grace. To show your God, our godliness, to point to Christ. Father, we're grateful for the authorities in our country. We pray for them. We pray for our president, our Congress, our Senate. The government that you've given us to lead us. Father, we're grieved when we look globally at the sin in the world today. As we watch the loss of life in Israel and Gaza, Father, we lament over men and women created in the image of God who suffer because of sin. Father, we grieve suffering and we grieve sin. Your word tells us to submit to the governing authorities that there's no authority except from God and those that ex exist have been instituted by you. And so we pray for the authorities in the Middle East today. They would work for peace. 
Your, your word tells us that rulers are not to be a terror to good conduct. May this be so. Father, even as we pray now for the Middle East, we are reminded that we are closest to those who are Christians in Israel and Gaza. We pray for Christians and pastors in this conflict. Give them strength and grace and faith and endurance. Father, as we turn to your word, we ask for your help. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, that you would use your word as you've promised to do. We pray that you would show us sin that we don't see on our own, that you would give us integrity. Shape us, we pray, as a church. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, earlier this year, the Barna Research Group conducted a survey from a wide base of Americans learning about their perceptions on Jesus Christ and Christianity. And the results were overwhelmingly warm to person of Jesus Christ. When respondents, though, were asked what causes them to doubt Christian beliefs, so by Christian beliefs, I'm thinking of just the idea of the Christian gospel, that all of us have sinned against God, that we deserve punishment for that, and that the only way to get right with God is through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. That's what I'm thinking when I think of Christian beliefs. When these respondents in this survey were asked what causes them to doubt, well, I, I wonder what you think they answered. Just like think for yourself for a second. What did people in America say was the greatest cause of doubt in Christianity and Christian beliefs? Go ahead, think about it. Maybe whisper to the person sitting next to you, kind of your guests. I mean, you do this every week anyway, and you think I don't see you. You have a free pass right now. This free pass, you can go ahead and just say, this is my guess. This is what I think causes the most doubt. Well, what in America is the leading doubt for Christian beliefs? Were respondents who self-identified as having no faith. So these are the nuns. The overwhelming response was the hypocrisy of religious people. Now that response was in the lead by a margin of 11 percentage points. So for all you people that, like, statistics aren't your thing, that's a big number. It's like a big difference. All right. For respondents from other faiths, so people kind of looking in on Christianity, they have their own faith, they're thinking about what we believe, who answered the same question, what's the leading uh, doubt that they have about Christian beliefs? Again, the hypocrisy of religious people was, number one, the most common doubt, the most common cause of doubt. Now, for Christians who answered about their own faith, what causes them to doubt their Christian beliefs? The hypocrisy of religious people was only barely in second place, the first place being human suffering. So, so think about what this is saying. Not only is hypocrisy in those who are most committed to our faith, arguably the greatest deterrent for others considering Christianity, 
It's one of the greatest things that kind of slows people to thinking about what we say we believe. But if this is true, it's also one of the greatest stumbling blocks for those of us who are already in the faith. Friends, spiritual hypocrisy is deadly. Now, if you're here today as a visitor, uh, maybe this is resonating with you. Maybe in your life, those claiming to be most committed to their faith have also been hypocrites, and perhaps you've been turned off by it. Well, I think today's passage of Scripture that we're about to study together will be a bit of fresh air for you. Jesus is about to, to blow in and is about to push out the stale air of empty religion. As he does this, I just want you to note on the front end that this picture in Scripture just destroys the idea that Jesus is just a nice guy. I mean, if that, it, it just destroys this idea that he is just always just kind by our standards today and always willing to be tolerant. If you've kind of boiled down the Christian message to that, to just being nice, well, take another look at what we see from Jesus today. His words are severe. He's severe against sin and against hypocrisy especially and against the religious leadership that we're going to read about today that misuse their authority. Now, Christians, if you're a Christian here today, I hope that this passage will leave you simultaneously relieved and convicted. Relieved as you see the evil authorities that Jesus is removing. And convicted as you see ways that you might just inadvertently have shrapnel of hypocrisy lodged in your heart. Spiritual hypocrisy is deadly. If you're looking for an argument, that's my main point today. It's what I want to convince you of. Spiritual hypocrisy is deadly. So ask God even now to show you your own hypocrisy. Ask God even now to help you decide with Jesus against your sin. When you hide your sin, you're joining with it, taking pride in who you are. When you stand against your sin and confess it, you're siding with Jesus against your sin. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We'll be in verses 37 through 54. In today's passage, we learn about hypocrisy by looking at this group of religious leaders, the Pharisees. As we try to understand it, we're going to see the, ev- the essence of hypocrisy, the audience of hypocrisy, the influence of hypocrisy, and then the end of hypocrisy. Now, as our story unfolds, it's connected to last week's teaching about, from Jesus about insight and light. So notice in verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash his hands before dinner. Luke tells us the scene happened while Jesus was speaking. So if you remember last week, Jesus had just been teaching on true light and true insight, not confusing it with darkness. And this religious leader seems to have heard Jesus' teaching on this, and apparently he wants to hear more. He's, so he, he invites Jesus into his house. Now, Pharisees in Jesus' day were this religious group that separated themselves out from others, and they devoted themselves to the tradition uh, of their sect and to the study of Scripture. 
Jesus here goes to one of their houses, and apparently there's a group of people gathered there listening to Jesus teach. I love the fact that Jesus went right into the middle of them. Jesus even goes to hypocrites. He's not a hypocrite towards the hypocrites. He loves them too. He doesn't just lob grenades from the outside. No, he goes in and talks to them. And as the situation develops, Jesus begins the dinner by provoking his guests. If you notice in verse 38, he didn't wash his hands before dinner. So this isn't just a, a hygiene issue here. No, as if uh, I, Jesus had poor etiquette or something like that. No, this is a, a ceremonial cleansing that Jesus is skipping. The, the Pharisees had developed specific traditions for washings and cleansings, which were not, uh, which went really beyond what Scripture had said, and were not in Scripture. And here, Jesus is clearly provoking these spiritual leaders. He's not following their man-made expectations. And this catches them off guard. Luke tells us his host was astonished. Jesus had gotten their attention, and he did it to rebuke them. Here we get to learn about their hypocrisy. Number one, the essence of hypocrisy. What is spiritual hypocrisy really? Jesus said to them, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So spiritual hypocrisy is using the appearance of goodness to disguise our evil hearts. Okay, so you're taking notes. Let me just say that again so you catch it. Spiritual hypocrisy is using the appearance of goodness to disguise our evil hearts. So imagine you are cleaning up dishes this afternoon. You pull a, a cup out of the dishwasher. Maybe you have a guest coming over. You want to give them a drink. And, and you kind of look down in the cup, and you notice the bottom of the cup is dishwasher crud. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? So it, caked on the bottom of the cup, the dishwasher hasn't finished its job. It's, it's just nasty. But your, your guest is standing there watching you. And so... You just fill up the cup with a drink. You don't take the moment to point out the problem and clean it up. You just fill it up. Maybe you even just wa wipe off the outside and hand it to the person standing in front of you. The problem is the dirt hasn't been taken care of. I mean, it appears good, but it's covering up the real problem inside. It's repulsive. I mean, who would want to be handed that drink? Jesus is saying this is what outwardly religious people do to God. He looks at these Pharisees and sees their greed and, and their wickedness on the inside of their hearts. And he says, this is repulsive. It's, it's gross. These Pharisees had so many tra traditions to, to clean themselves up, but they didn't clean up the true dirt inside their hearts. They were hypocrites. Jesus gives us another example in verse 42. We read there, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. 
and neglected justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So a tithe in Old Testament law would a, a tenth of your income. God's people would they'd collect a portion of what they had and they'd bring it to the temple and it was used as an offering to God and to care for the needs of the poor. To care for the poor, to care for justice in the land. And Jesus says that these religious leaders, now on the one hand, they were so scrupulous, they were so careful about this visible practice that they literally tithed their spice racks. I mean, you can picture them going out to the garden and, and picking a stem of, of mint and counting off one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten leaves. One-tenth of this goes to the temple. That's how scrupulous they were. But Jesus sees their heart, and he says, this external show was just a parade, hiding the fact that they were neglecting to love God and to love their neighbor through justice. They were literally contributing to the fund that would care for the poor, but in their hearts, they didn't care for the poor themselves. They were literally contributing to the fund that would lead in worship of God, and yet, in their hearts, they weren't joyously loving God with the gifts that they were giving. What a lesson for our giving, by the way. It's not they shouldn't give. Give as alms those things that are within these things, this giving, you ought to have done. You see, the essence of hypocrisy is instead of pursuing holiness, they were pursuing the image of holiness. Any non-Christians here, uh, notice that Jesus is saying here that it's not enough just to be authentic. Our culture often replaces hypocrisy with authenticity. Just be true to yourself. Be authentic. But Jesus is saying, you don't just need a clear cup that you can see through. You need a clean cup that's, that's removed of the dirt. Well, if this is the essence of hypocrisy, uh, why do we do it? Why do we hide our sin? Why do the Pharisees? Why do they make such a show of external goodness to hide that, that inward filth? Jesus explains our motivations in number two, the audience of hypocrisy. Why did, Jesus, why did the Pharisees hide sin and cover it by mere external goodness? Well, they had the wrong audience. They confused who was really watching. Look at verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Okay, friends, here's the thing. I can, I can tell you about your hearts today. When you hide your sin in, in hypocrisy, it's because the opinions and the praise of others looms large in your minds. That's what's happening. You don't want others to think worse of you. So the Pharisees here, uh, for the Jewish people would gather together in the synagogue, and, and up at the front of the synagogue would be the ark, on the eastern wall facing Jerusalem and the bima, a raised platform where the Torah would be read. And then uh, prayer seating where the people would gather around and sit during the service. And the best seat in the synagogue probably refers to the front row of seats that was nearer to the ark and therefore reserved as this place of honor. 
the greetings that he refers to here are, are traditional, elaborate recognitions that would be given to these Pharisees out in public. So you can just think external status symbols. Jesus is saying they loved receiving attention from man because of their positions. Like relishing when people introduce you and trot out your accomplishments. Or savoring when you're when being referenced to a specific title or a degree or a job position you have that give you a sense of importance. Jesus doesn't minimize giving honor here. No, he's attacking the motive of the person receiving it when they idolize that attention from man. And Jesus is saying these Pharisees' lives, they're, they're kind of like a performance stage. And, and here they are on this stage of performance, but they have the wrong audience. They're going to a place of worship, and they're focusing on man. How foolish. Jesus points it out in verse 40. He says, you fools, did not he who make the outside make the inside also? Do you see what he's doing here? is refocusing their attention on their perspective of God. He's saying, God made the cup. God as creator is emphasized here. He created you so he knows you. He's your audience. He's the one that you want to be clean for. And Jesus is saying, when your audience is man, when you're on that stage and you're performing before man, you have turned your back on God and forgotten what he sees. You've forgotten what he sees. You know, there's this place in Ed Welch's really helpful book, When People Are Big and God is Small, where he explores the same idea. He's writing to emphasize that, the, that when other people loom large on the stage of your heart, you know, in your minds, that the opinion of God just necessarily shrinks, just gets smaller in your view. He writes, do you reverence and fear the opinions of others? Do you need them to buttress your sense of well-being and identity? Do you need them to fill you up? The problem is clear. People are too big in our lives, and God is too small. So friends, who's your audience? Is your audience? If your audience is man, then you will put on a mask and to try to hide your sin through a facade of just outward holiness. Just test yourselves. Ask yourself, who is your audience? Who, who were you thinking about when you came into worship uh, this morning or each week? As you sing, are you thinking about the people around you and how sincere you look to them in your worship? Who are you thinking about chiefly when you pray publicly in front of your family or friends? Are you wanting to say something that would make you sound I insightful to them? Perhaps get an amen? Who are you preparing for before you come to church each week? Do you give more energy to preparing the way you look physically than you do to preparing your heart to come before God. 
Friends, the reality is that the audience of man will inevitably produce hypocrisy. You'll pursue the appearance of holiness rather than holiness itself. This external show it just turns deadly. Spiritual hypocrisy is deadly. It's like cancer that's, that's hidden in your body. And just like cancer, it will spread. In fact, that's, that's where Jesus goes next. Number three, he looks at the influence of hypocrisy. You know, Jesus here is calling out leaders in his day. And when they sin, they are using their authority to keep others from God. They're saying lies about who God is by the way that they respond to their sin. Others were knowingly led unknowingly led astray. Look at verse 44 with me. He says, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. So in the Mosaic Law, God's people were meant to keep themselves ceremonially clean. They couldn't have any contact with a dead body without being defiled by it ceremonially. And this was a lesson given by God to teach them just about the defiling nature of sin. So because of this, they would be careful to just mark out where a graveyard was, to, to, to warn people so that somebody doesn't go for a walk and come back accidentally unclean before God. Well, an unmarked grave would risk defiling someone, and the horror of it was they might not even be aware that they had come into contact with a dead body. So Jesus is saying these teachers would fail to warn people so that the persons around them would be harmed spiritually without even knowing it. It's like a doctor who conceals cancer to make their patient feel good. Like, conceal the evil, just don't have that hard conversation, and, and hope the person's okay. It's evil. He says to the Pharisees, you're like unmarked graves. It's like a parent who doesn't teach their child about sin. Or it's like a friend who condones the sinful lifestyle of another friend, acting like it's just okay to them. It's like a coworker who doesn't ever bring up the gospel with another coworker because they don't want to be seen as intolerant. It's like a church member who doesn't pursue another church member who's absent because you don't want to bother them or offend them. Friends, the grave might look better hidden. Their sin might be easier if it's just left buried. But failing to warn against sin is unkindness. These Pharisees failed with their influence and allowed people to just walk into defilement. And so this is obviously just a heavy rebuke on them from our master. Now, if you feel like this is heavy to hear this morning, Imagine if you're sitting in the room at dinner with Jesus over this. You invited him into your house, and this is where he goes talking to you. Jesus is saying, as a guest, verse 45, we realize that again, 
as this lawyer who's sitting there apparently has the gumption to go up and, and, and speak. It's like, oh, wait, wait a second. Verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, uh, you insult us also. Now the lawyer scribes would have been those that interpreted the law to aid in the, the Pharisees' traditions. They realized that if this rebuke was true for the Pharisees, well, then it also implicates them as well. So when he complains to Jesus, Jesus just continues. Look at verse 46. He said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Now, I understand that Jesus here is referring to giving out laws that were beyond what Scripture required. They were not only making the burden of obedience harder than it should have been, well, they were also unwilling to touch the burden themselves by their own example. They were unwilling to help others carry that burden. As Thomas Manson writes, there's something evil about scribal labors which multiply the number of ways in which a man can offend God, but cannot help him to please God. Jesus says, woe to such men. He laments such men. Christians here must ask, how do you use your authority? Husbands, employers, parents, mothers. Do you load up those under you with burdens that are hard to bear? Do you neglect to lead by example? Husbands, as you lead your wives, do you begin with first modeling the character that you are calling them to? Or do you not touch the burdens with one of your fingers? I was encouraged this week by thinking about this passage with a group of brothers. One of them pointed out how easy it is for us as parents to require respect from authority from our, uh, from our children that we then ourselves often don't model. So just parents, think about this. If your child spoke to you the same way that you speak about your president or about your Congress or about your government, the same respect you have for the authority God's given you, if your child followed your example... Would you be happy with what you hear? Do you acquire those of those under you a different standard than what you yourself are willing to keep? Good authority models what it requires. So Jesus continues down in 50, verse 52. He says, Woe to you lawyers! You've taken away the key of knowledge, and you did not enter yourselves. You hindered those who were entering. These men had the scriptures, the truth about God himself, and by their teaching in their lives, they made it harder for people to follow God. They're like the survey respondents we started the sermon with. Like, people saw them and said, if that's what this is, I'm hindered from entering into this. Imagine there's a, there's a fire in this room right now. Just imagine. And, and you see there's there's red fire escape signs all around the doors right now. They're, they're kind of like keys, where if the smoke fills up the room, you see that's where we run to. For the piece of knowledge you need to get out. 
Well, imagine in the middle of a fire, I just, I went and I took them all down. This is how one pastor illustrates this. He says, these men were like painted fire exits. In a crowded building, going up in front of flames, people meaning to escape, and taking the leaders at their word, they were telling them to escape, but in fact, they were brick walls painted to look like a door. Fire exits leading to the wrong place. The Pharisees' hypocrisy was especially evil because of the way they used their authority to hinder others from entering into the kingdom. Beloved, I know that some of you have been under poor authority before. Bad authority in your life. You've been under perhaps an abusive father or a harsh mother. You've been under a manipulative leader or a legalistic teacher or a selfish pastor for. Jesus shows us here his anger with this type of sin. Jesus is sharpest in his critique of evil hypocrisy in leadership. And he will end it. The glorious news is that he will end it. This is point four of the sermon, the end of hypocrisy. Jesus tells us that God will hold these men accountable for their ungodly authority and their hypocrisy. Look at verse 47 and following. Jesus says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets, shed from the foundation of the world, may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So apparently, these religious leaders claimed to honor the previous prophets who had been martyred. They honored them by, by building these tombs in their honor. And, and Jesus says, these leaders are actually witnesses to their martyrdom, and they consent with it. They consent to it, to the rejection of these prophets in previous generations. How could that be true? How could these men be consenting to a previous rejection of a prophet who they didn't even see? Jesus is going to hold them accountable for all of the prophets. Did you see that? Who died. Verse 51 speaks of the blood of Abel, so that would have been the first death in the Torah. All the way to the blood of Zechariah in Second Chronicles, which in the Hebrew ordering of Scripture would have been the last martyr of the Old Testament. Every one of them, from the first to the last, martyred and killed, they, this generation would be held accountable for. Why? What did these men do? Look at verse 49. It says, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. Now, this is intentionally reminiscent of a parable that Jesus tells. We're going to find in Luke, in Luke 20 in a few months. It's about a king who's God, who sends messenger after messenger to his people. 
and they reject every single messenger, every single prophet that comes. Until finally, the king not just sends another messenger, but he sends his own son. And Jesus is tacitly saying, when you reject me, you're rejecting every one of the prophets who pointed to me. You think you honor the prophets? You hypocrites. They were talking about me. That's what Jesus is saying. The end of this trail of rejection is finding its culmination right here in this dining room as Jesus is speaking. Right here at this dinner, the prophet of all prophets is being rejected. Look at it, verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So these men, they chose to stand with their sin and their hypocrisy rather than standing with Christ and confessing it. This word here, to provoke him, carries the tone of an interrogation. It's like a courtroom. It means to examine closely with the picture of this prosecutor that is examining a criminal. They're trying to put him to the test. They're trying to catch him. Like a like lying in wait. Like a, like a beast lies in wait to, to catch its prey. That's what they're doing with Jesus here. Jesus had called out their hypocrisy, and they'd rather reject another prophet than admit that he was right. The good news is that Jesus here is announcing the end to their hypocrisy. I wonder if you notice this reoccurring word in the text. Woe. Several times we've seen it throughout the text. Woe to you Pharisees. Woe. This word is really a, a word of Lament. It's, it's actually a funeral word. It's what you cry out at, at a death march as the life of the, the lifeless corpse is being taken away. Death, woe, lament. The end has come. Beloved, that's good news for us. Evil hypocrisy. Evil leadership is being replaced right here. Do you want to see what the end of hypocrisy looks like? Well, the opposite of hypocrisy would be perfect integrity. It would be consistent holiness, would it not? And if you ever found somebody with this type of integrity, you could lie in wait for him to catch him in something he might say, and you would be left waiting. You could put him on the stand to interrogate him and come up with nothing. If you ever found someone with this perfect integrity, you could press him hard, you could poke him and prod him, put him to test from every direction, and continually find consistent holiness. The end of hypocrisy is here in this person, the one standing before them. You see, spiritual hypocrisy is it's deadly. So deadly that it required the death of the Son of God. 
So fellow hypocrites here today, do you want to be free of this cancer? Well, then stop trying on your own. Your work is not in you, but it's found in him who puts an end to this. Don't you see he is the end of hypocrisy? He didn't neglect justice and the law of God. No, he fulfilled all justice and the law of God. He, he didn't load people up with burdens too hard to bear and not touch them himself. He said this, he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the one who ended hypocrisy. He didn't live to please the audience of man. He lived to please the audience of his heavenly father. He didn't take away the key to knowledge. He brought the key to knowledge. Look inside his cup. John 4, 5 says, In him there was no sin. Jesus came to restore sinners like you and I. He died the death we deserve to die. He lived the life that we could never live. And he rose from the grave. And if you walk by that grave, you won't walk away defiled. You'll walk away clean because his righteousness will be yours. Run to Jesus. Look to him. He's the true and better authority. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you for the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We glory in him. We glory in his perfect integrity, his perfect work on our behalf. We fall into his arms today and trust him. All glory be to Christ be glorified in us as we rest in him. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.